All right, welcome everybody. You guys can all come back in and find a place to get comfortable. We've been in the midst of a series called Live Generously. And it's been a, a series about learning to be generous as Jesus is generous. I've heard a number of testimonies from different ones who are part of the church who have stepped out in giving in some way or stepped out in being generous in their lives in the midst of this series and had really cool testimonies. So if you have a cool testimony about stepping out in this way over the last month or so as we've been doing this series, please share that with some of your friends, share that with people around you to testify about what God has been doing in your life. In the first sermon that I preached in this series, I preached a sermon called The Heart of Generosity, which talked about the fact that God isn't actually after our money, he's after our heart, but the easiest way for him to direct our heart is to direct our money. And then the next uh, sermon that I preached was called The Blessing of Generosity, and that was about learning to live under the blessing of God by obeying what God commands of us. And then last week, Ben preached a message called uh, Generous Giving, which is about how it takes faith to give first and to put God first in our life. This, this morning's message is called Generous Living. And we're going to be looking at um, not only giving of our finances, but giving of our life. Um, in the first sermon that I preached, I said that God isn't just after our finances. He's after our heart. Well, as it turns out, God's not just after your heart. God's after all of you. When you give your money, it takes a certain measure of faith to do that first. To say, God, I'm giving and I'm trusting you in that giving. But how many of you know if you need more money, the truth is you can go and make more money. But when you give away your time, you're giving away something that's precious. Each one of us only has so much time. And when you give time away, the truth is you can't get that time back. There are a number of times in the Bible where Jesus gives his time to individuals. And it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't add up. It's not logical because Jesus has this message that he wants to get out. And eventually he wants that message to go to the ends of the earth. And we're a part of that message going to the ends of the earth today. So if Jesus wants that message to get out to as many people as possible, he needs to share that message with as many people as possible. So logically, Jesus would be spending all of his time in front of the masses, teaching as many people as possible, like eat, sleep, in front of the crowd. Eat, sleep, in front of the crowd. That's what Jesus should be doing if he wants to get that message out. But time and time again, we see Jesus with individuals. We see Jesus go and find Peter after Peter had lost hope and given up. We find Jesus with the woman at the well. We find Jesus having a meal with John. Because first of all, Jesus has a heart for people. He did it in obedience to the Father, and he did it because he was generous. I recently heard a quote from a pastor that I thought was very applicable to what we're talking about today. I wanted to share it with you. He said, we are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. The church does not exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world. I'm going to read that again. We are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. The church does not exist for us, but we are the church, and we exist for the world. 
So how can we live generously? I picked three stories from the Bible that communicated that well this morning. The first one is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 17 and 18. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread to your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance for them. The first way that we can be generous is we can bring a lunch. I love this portion of Scripture because this portion of Scripture feels like just normal, everyday, plain life. Sometimes we read um, instruction in the Scripture and it seems big, like raise the dead, cast out demons. Like that seems big and it's like, okay, I, that seems a little intimidating. But in this portion of Scripture, it's just normal, plain, everyday life. Jesse goes to his son David and he asks him to take some lunch to his brothers. Now, we're in the middle of summer break here uh, in these parts. And summer break can be a little bit challenging if you've got kids at home. Kids can kind of get on each other's nerves and be picking at each other and disobeying and all this sort of stuff. So if there's any kids here this morning whose last name is Lonaville, I have some instructions for you on how you can make the rest of your summer a success. You can have a great rest of your summer. Just do what David did and obey your father for the love of God. <laughs> Just obey your father. First of all, you never know what simple obedience will turn into in your life. David was just obeying his father, Jesse, just taking some food to his brothers, and that obedience opened a door in David's life that he never could have imagined that it was going to open. It opened a door for him to slay Goliath, bring freedom and victory to his people. In God's kingdom, small obedience can reap a large harvest. Amen? I heard a story about a father who really appreciated Billy Graham's ministry, and he wanted to take his son and his daughter to see Billy Graham. He wanted them to appreciate his ministry as much as he did. So he told his kids to go get in the car and get ready to go, and they did, and the father wrapped up a few things that he had to take care of in, inside, and then he went and got in the car, and off they went to go hear Billy Graham. They pulled into the parking lot, and they got situated, and the father was backing into the parking spot, and he looked in his rearview mirror, and he saw that his son had two Bibles. And he thought, that's weird. Like, why does he have two Bibles? So he said, why did you bring two Bibles? And he said, well, I didn't really try to. I couldn't find my normal Bible, but I wanted to come prepared, because you've been telling me about Billy Graham preaching the Word of God. So I wanted to see it. So I, I went and I dug through my room, and I found my old Bible, and I brought that. And then I got in the back seat of the car, and wouldn't you know, right there was my normal Bible. So here I am with two Bibles. And the father said this, he said, why don't you bring it along, maybe somebody will need it. So the son said, okay. So he brought the Bible along, thought maybe somebody would need it. So they got in there, they got seated, and they got all settled in there. And the father looked up ahead and he saw someone with a hat on backwards and he recognized it. It was his school's, um, high school was on, on the hat. And he kind of looked at the guy for a second and he realized it was one of his friends from high school. So he got up and he went a few seats up to talk to his friend from high school the son was sitting there, and he looked, and he saw up by the stage there was someone who looked very official, like either a policeman or a security guard, and he thought, I'm going to go tell that guy that I've got an extra Bible and tell him if he knows anyone that needs it, they can have it. 
So he went up there and he found the guy and he said, hey, I've got this extra Bible. I kind of brought it on accident. If you know of anybody who needs a Bible, just let me know. And as he finished that sentence, the crowd stood up and started cheering and yelling. And he looked over and Billy Graham was on the stage. He couldn't believe it. Everyone's cheering and yelling and he turns around to go sit back with his dad, but he can't see where his dad was, was sitting because everyone's standing now. So he stands there and he watches and Billy Graham goes up and he, he sets his notebook down at the podium and Billy Graham kind of like looks around for a little bit and looks over here and then he, he starts walking off stage and the security guard sees him coming off stage and thinks like, uh-oh, is he sick or something? Like, what's wrong? So he walks over to the edge of the stage to, to talk to him and he says, what's wrong? And Billy Graham says, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but I think I left my Bible either in the car or in the hotel and I can't preach without my Bible. And the security guard says, well, I just know where, where to find one. So he goes over to the boy. He said, do you still have your Bible? And he said, yes. So he takes the boy's Bible. He brings it over to Billy Graham. Billy Graham walks over to the podium, opens the Bible to find out it's a children's Bible. And at that point, Billy Graham preaches in Pittsburgh from a children's Bible. And thousands of people came to the Lord that night. Thousands of people flooded the altar. That little boy was one of those people who came to the altar and he committed his life to the Lord. And he thought to himself, man, I wish this many people would get saved when I read the Bible. He looked up and he just saw a sea of people. He couldn't believe it. It was amazing. So he goes back to his seat and he sits down. And after the service, Billy Graham came over to the security guard and he said, would you find that boy so I could give him his Bible back and thank him? He said, sure. So he found the boy and brought him over and he thanked him. And Billy Graham said, never underestimate God's ability to take something small and do something powerful with it. The boy said, I simply obeyed my dad. He said, why don't you bring the Bible along? Maybe somebody will need it. You never know what simple obedience will turn into in your life. Second thing we can pull from this scripture where David goes to feed his brothers is who can you feed? Is there someone around you that you can feed? Maybe somebody you can just invite over for lunch or for dinner. Maybe you could take the gospel which has been food to your soul and has been nourishment to you and share that with somebody else. Maybe you could share your testimony with somebody and tell them what God has done in your life. In the simple act of bringing food to his hungry brothers, in the simple act of serving, God opened a door in David's life. I can't help but wonder what doors might open in our life through our simple obedience. Maybe simple obedience of serving somebody, or maybe simple obedience of feeding somebody. The second story that shows us generosity is in Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 28 through 35. It said, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, on the colt, and put Jesus on it. The second way that we can be generous is to offer a ride. It's like that man did that offered his, his colt. Part of generous living 
is learning to see the needs around us. It's so easy to get so busy and so wrapped up in our own lives that we miss out on the needs around us. We don't even see it. Sometimes we don't see the needs because we get so busy. Other times we see the needs, but we don't really want to give our time to the needs, so we ignore it and we pretend we don't see it. But most of the time, we're just putting our head down, doing the stuff of life that we have to do to make life happen, and we end up missing out on the needs around us. As believers, God is calling us and challenging us to take the blinders off of our eyes, to stop being so focused on our stuff and begin to be open to seeing the needs that are around us. There are opportunities that God has put in your life to serve the people around you, but so many times we just miss out because we don't see it. A number of years ago, I was actually figuring it out this morning, and I think it was actually 12 years ago uh, this month that our church sent a team to Haiti. There had been an earthquake in Haiti, and we had heard about it, and we wanted to do something to help, so we had taken up a couple offerings here at church, and there's uh, some missionaries that we support, Roger and Margaret Clark in Haiti, and we had sent them the offering, and we asked them if, if there was anything else we could do to serve. And they said, actually, there's a, a church that we're very connected with that was completely destroyed in the earthquake. And we're looking for teams to come down and to help rebuild that church. So we said, sign us up. We'll, we'll bring a team down to do it. And so a bunch of guys from our church went down to help rebuild that church. And those guys that went on the trip, they'll remember the guy that was overseeing the project. His name was John Wicks. John Wicks is a guy from central New York, and he had spent most of his time as a commercial builder, building large commercial buildings, and he had said, God, if there's anything you can do with my life, I just want to make myself available to you. I don't really know what I have to offer. I don't know how you would use me, but God, if, if you could use me in some way, I just want to make myself available to you. So John Wicks heard about this need in, uh, in Haiti, and he reached out to the Clarks, and he said the same thing to him that we did. He said, if there's anything I can do to help, just let me know. I'd be happy to serve. So they said, actually, would you be willing to oversee the construction of this church, and we will bring teams down from the United States, and you can oversee them and show them what to do to, to rebuild this church. So John got together with engineers up here in central New York and figured out a plan for how to build a structure that wouldn't fail if there was another earthquake. And then they started bringing in teams down there to, to help. And there was a team that was down there before us, and they did kind of some site prep work. And then we went down, and John opened the blueprints, and he said, all right, we need some guys to start building these forms for these huge pillars that are going to be kind of like the skeleton for the building. We need another group of guys to start building these rebar cages. And so we just jumped in. We started working, working and making it happen. Now John took what he had. He took the skills that he had, and he just offered them to God. John probably did pretty well for himself building in central New York. He certainly was making more money doing that than he was building in Haiti. In fact, he wasn't making any money building in Haiti, and it was costing him money to go there. But he did it because he offered himself to God and said, God, if there's anything I could do to serve, if there's any way I could serve you, any way I could be a blessing to your people or advance your kingdom, I'm all in. Count me in. And then when the opportunity arose... He did it. And then our, the guys from our church went down, and they too brought what they had. We had manual labor. We didn't know as much as John did, but 
we could be there and we could mix concrete and we could wire up the rebar cages and do all that stuff to make it happen. We offered what we had and God used us. When I was looking at this, I remembered my grandmother, my nana. Um, she, up until the day that she died, pretty much all the time that I remember talking to her or hanging out with her, she was almost always knitting. She had a gift for knitting and she loved knitting and just like John offered himself to God, my nana offered herself to God and said, God, if you can use my life, if you can do anything with me, I just want to make myself available to you. And then she heard about this need. She heard about these people in New York City that were homeless and there was a ministry that would collect hats and mittens and give them out to homeless people in the winter so that they could stay warm. So she said, hey, I can do that. So she started knitting hats and mittens. And for as long as I can remember, my grandma was knitting hats and mittens for these homeless people in New York City. That was the ride that she had to offer. That was the gift that she had that she could use. I have some friends over in Arcade, and they were in that same place too. Like They felt like they wanted to serve God, and they wanted to make themselves available to God. And I remember one of them saying, like, I can't really preach, and I, can't really, I don't play any instruments, so I can't play in the worship team, but I want to I serve, but I don't really know what to do. I don't know how to serve God. So we said, well, let's just pray about it and ask God what he wants you to do. These guys were pretty mechanically inclined. And one of them said, I feel like God gave me this idea. I just want to throw it out. You tell me it's crazy and then we won't do it. But if you think it's a good idea, we'll go for it. His idea was, what if we offered free oil changes to single moms? Single moms who are struggling, having a hard time, probably don't have someone that's worried about the maintenance on their car too much or anything like that. What if we just did that as a, a gift to bless our community? So they started doing it. They didn't know if anyone would show up there was a long line of cars of single moms all the way around the church the first time they did it. Now they do it every fall and every spring. A group of guys from the church, they come together, they bring all their tools, they bring ramps, they bring all this stuff to offer free oil changes to single moms. And many of those single moms were so impacted by that that they started coming to the church and eventually gave their lives to Christ. What gifts do you have to offer? Maybe you feel like you don't have any super specific gifts. Well, let me tell you another story. There was a lady who used to sit right about here while I was growing up. We used to have pews here, but she used to sit right there in a pew. Her name was Jean Bewley. If we were going to Haiti to rebuild this church, Jean Bewley is, is not going to be much of a help on this trip, i got to say. Like, she would probably be pretty uncomfortable. I mean, she probably weighed like 85 pounds, like the skinniest little lady you've ever seen in your life. But when I was growing up in this church, Probably almost every Sunday, she would find me, and she would seek me out, and she would say, Jonathan, you know I need a hug. Get over here. I'd say, okay. And so I'd, I'd give her a hug, and she'd say, Jonathan, God has a plan for your life, and if you'll surrender to him, he's going to use you, I promise. She didn't have a whole lot to offer, but what she did have to offer was she had some encouragement to a teenager who wanted to surrender to God, but was struggling with that decision. What about you? What do you have to offer What's the ride that you could give? What's the blessing that you could give to the people around you? Maybe a coworker or a neighbor or a friend or an enemy. Maybe somebody around you that you could offer support to. Or maybe you do have some specific skills that could be a blessing to somebody. Take what you have, offer it to God, and you might be shocked what he might do with it. The last way that I want to point out to live generously is found in John Chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. It was just before the Passover festival, 
Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet by drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus, who lived generously, came prepared to serve. He came with a towel. He came carrying a towel. How many of you know someone who seems to always be prepared in every situation? For me in my life, it was my mom. My mom was just like always prepared. She's like a super planner and she tries to plan for just contingency plans for her contingency plans. And, and she had this big purse when I was a kid. And it seemed like everything you could possibly need in life could be found in this purse. I remember one time we were driving down the highway and the muffler fell off our car. My dad was looking for something to wire it up and he's like, I can't find anything. He's like, I need a coat hanger or something. My mom pulled a coat hanger out of the bottom of her purse. Like, why was that there? My mom had a kit in the bottom of her purse for, could handle most surgeries, like even some complex surgeries, like, you know, a sliver or something like that. But she had this kit for handing, she had a band-aid of every size imaginable. She was always ready to go. If we ever got stranded in a snowstorm or something on the highway, I'm pretty sure she had enough food in there to keep us alive for about a month. I mean, she was always prepared. Jesus came to the table prepared. He came to the table prepared to serve. When we come to the table, we often come to the table prepared to consume. We're prepared to satisfy ourselves. But when Jesus came to the table, he came prepared to serve. You know, we come to the table and we put on our stretchy pants to make room for the, the meal. Where maybe you unbutton the top buttons because you don't want to blow that baby out and take the eye off of the person across the table from you. We come prepared to stuff ourselves but Jesus came prepared to serve. One time we had a work day here at church and we were going to put a new roof on the church parsonage. And if you've done roofing before, you know it's like hot and it's sweaty and it's dirty and it's nasty. You've got to tear that thing off and there's tar and there's nails all over. And I was up on the roof and we had started to work and I saw this guy pull up and he came to help, supposedly. And uh, he was wearing a Hawaiian shirt cargo shorts and flip-flops and I saw him and I'm like dude you're prepared for cornhole or the beach like you are not prepared to be here to do this but Jesus when he came to the table he came prepared Jesus sat down he took off his hoodie he put his hat on backwards and he pulled his towel out to get down on his knees and wash his disciples feet back in those days the roads were dirty and they were in that part of the country they were dusty and nasty and the roads weren't just for people they were also for animals many times and so animals would walk on the road and they would go to the bathroom on the road the roads were nasty in those days and people were wearing sandals and oftentimes when you would go to someone's house there would be a servant there that would take your sandals off and wash your feet so that you didn't drag all of that nastiness into the house and create an unsanitary situation 
That job of washing the feet was certainly not the job for someone who owned the home. It wasn't a job for someone who was in the family of the people who owned the home. That job was for a servant. That was someone who was pretty low on the totem pole. That job was certainly not for a king or anything like that. But here Jesus is, the king of his kingdom, and he gets down on his knees and he starts to wash his disciples' feet. In fact, at one point, a few verses later, Peter kind of gets in a little bit of an argument with Jesus where he's saying, like, you shouldn't be washing my feet. Like, this is too dirty of a job for you. Like, if anything, I should be washing your feet. But Jesus wanted his disciples to know, and he wants you to know this morning, none of us are above serving. It's not that long in the storyline before Jesus ascends to heaven. Eventually, Peter becomes one of the foundational pieces of the church in fact he basically becomes the first pope and it could have been easy for peter to look at his life and say look what i've become like look what i've done it would be easy for pride to rise up in peter but peter could never get that proud because he remembered jesus washing his feet he remembered jesus preferring to play with kids than to play with uh, pharisees he says, you know what, maybe I should go play with some kids myself, or maybe I should go wash someone's feet. I was reading this story this week, and it, it hit me. Sometimes when we're, when we're kids, we'll play games, and we'll say things like, what would you do if you won a million dollars? Or I guess the lottery was just a billion dollars. So what would you do if you won a billion dollars in the lottery? Or if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? Or if you knew you just had one day left to live, what would you do? I asked my daughter Tessa that question one time, and she said she would fill a pool with Swedish fish and swim in it. <laughs> you know, we try and we would, would eat whatever, we might say we would eat our favorite meal, eat whatever food we wanted because calories don't matter anymore. Maybe some people would go on some adventure they always wanted to go on. Maybe they'd go skydiving or bungee jumping or something. But here Jesus is. It's his last day to live. He knows it's his last day to live. He tells his disciples it's the last day he has to live. And he doesn't go do something to satisfy himself, to gratify himself. He gets down on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet. When we see this Jesus who serves in this way, it makes us want to praise him, doesn't it? Just hearing that again this morning, you just want to say, man, Jesus, you're so wonderful. You're so good and so kind. But so many times we'll praise him and then we'll turn around and walk out of the church and go back to our normal, self-centered lives. It's not enough just to simply praise Jesus. It's not enough to raise your hands or sing or shout or dance or clap. That's not enough. Jesus did this so that his disciples would align their lives to look like him. Jesus is asking us today, will we align our lives to look like him? Will we serve in so many different ways that serving becomes such a big part of us that it's not a part of us at all? It's completely who we are. We actually are servants. I want to end my message this morning by reading that quote that I started with. We are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. 
The church doesn't exist for us. We are the church, and we exist for the world. Maybe you could read that with me this morning out loud to hear these words come out of your mouth. We are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. The church doesn't exist for us. We are the church, and we exist for the world. Would you bow your heads this morning? Lord, we thank you that you're a generous God. And you call us to step into that generosity ourselves. You call us to step out of selfishness and consumption and to step into a life of serving. Lord, help us to take the step from just seeing you and being in awe of who you are and what you've done. But Lord, help us to actually become followers. Help us to become servants. Help us not to shy away from those opportunities or not to turn a blind eye. But Lord, make us like you. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week. Go and find someone to serve.